Good morning. Thank you for coming back after hearing me last week speak. That's uh, always an encouragement. If you would, open your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. As I open my Bible today, I, uh, for the past uh, couple of weeks, I printed out and put a map of Israel in my, ba- my Bible as a constant reminder to pray for that country and what God is doing there and, uh, and what uh, is occurring there. And so we need to continue to pray for Israel and, uh, and all the turmoil there in that nation. Uh, this morning, I want to first start by giving you a picture or a portrait of God. Uh, I don't know if you dwell on this much. I think this would be an encouragement to you. A good portrait of God is that he is sovereign, meaning he is in control of everything, everyone, at any time. He's all-powerful. He's eternal. From the beginning to the end, God has been and always will be. He knows everything. He's never surprised. He's never rattled. God is never, never in heaven does God go, ah, how did that happen? Just never happens. He is never worried. Fear is never named amongst God. Look at me, let me give you a picture of the regenerate person. That would be people who know Christ, who have been regenerated by his spirit. We are indwelled by the God whom I just described. We are eternally secure. We are guaranteed heaven. He will ne- we will never die. We are called children of the living God. We have been given the word of God, which contains everything for life and godliness. Anxiety, uncertainty, the lack of confidence should never be named among us. As long as we're walking in the spirit, abiding in the relationship of the Savior, we should be an example of confidence and courage to the world. Now, with the contrast of that, let me give you a picture of the world today. At every turn, there is upheaval, there is doubt, there is nervousness, uneasiness, uncertainty, and debilitating fear. So what are we afraid of today? Well, let me give you a few things that probably any of you could make this list. We're concerned about the Middle East. We're concerned about Ukraine conflict. We're concerned about the potential of Taiwan and all the other global problems facing us. We're concerned about crime in our city. While I was sitting here this morning, my sister just called me. She lives in Cary. She's 10 years older, and she and her husband live down in Cary. And she called. She wanted to know how I was doing. She said, you're preaching this morning? Yes. And I, she said, well, we've had some excitement. This is, I mean, this is 10 minutes ago. She said, last night... Two of the houses, two houses up from us were broken in while they were sleeping upstairs and they were robbed. And I could hear in my sister's voice that tonight she'll be sleeping with a baseball bat. You know what I'm saying? You know how they get? get? Mass shootings, road rage, fear for our children that they would be touched by fentanyl and be one of the 100,000 young people snuffed out by that poison this year. Fear that our children will be influenced by a teacher who would suggest that they investigate their sexuality. 
and explore what God had already placed in them and the gender which their parents have imposed upon them instead of how God has designed them. Or fearful of the invasion of a border and not knowing who those 8 million people are and what they're doing here. And it may be that many of them are here for good reason and good intent and wanting something different. But we just don't know who they are and what they might do. So we live with fear. We want to minister to them, but we're not sure. We're fearful of financial collapse. We look at the markets this week and the upheaval and a vulnerable economy and evaporating retirement and suffocating inflation. And still lingering in the background is the possibility of another pandemic. And we look around and we see people who just by a sneeze go running to isolate themselves. Friends, I'm telling you, the world is paralyzed by fear right now. And if we let it, that fear can slip into the hearts and capture the minds of the children of the Most High God. As followers of Christ, we are not to live in fear or have phobias, but to live a faith filled, confident, courageous life. Nevertheless, with the onslaught of this anxiety and all the complexities that are facing throughout the world, any one of us can become infected and overtaken by fear. And if not us personally, our children, our aging parents and, and relatives, our neurotic neighbors, our conflicted co-workers, or maybe just simply that fellow member in your small group this week who you'll meet with. People who have not been established in their faith who need to know they don't need to live in fear. And some of you are saying, are you saying that as mature Christians we should never have fear? No, I'm not saying that. God's Word is saying that. Ephesians 4 tells us, until we have all obtained the unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, meaning mature believers, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful, deceitful schemes. So if we're a fully established believer, we should not get thrown left and right by any kind of things that come our way that may create fear, it shouldn't be a part of our lives. Exodus 14, Moses speaking to the people, he said this, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you you have only to be silent. This is facing the, de red, uh, the, uh, the Red Sea and the Egyptian army behind them and uh, certainly a reason to fear. And Moses says, don't fear. Stand firm. God is with us. Psalm 23, a familiar psalm, the shepherd psalm, or really the sheep psalm. Right in the middle it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right in the middle of that great psalm. And then 1 John 4, 4 tells us, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Who? 
For he who is in you is greater than he's in the world. Amen? And amen would right there encourage me right now. Okay. So I can keep going. In Christ, we're to live above fear. And I want to consider this topic of fear because we are living in the middle of it. And we need to give answers for it. And maybe you need some answers for it today. And so I want to look at this idea of fear and how to face it. Interesting enough, we're going to look at a person who the Apostle Paul called twice the man of God. That's a title, very important title, a title of a mature, strong person. However, this person was going through some incredibly difficult times and facing fear and might have been teetering on being overcome by it. And that person is young Timothy Paul, who just seems like they never had a crack in the armor, he could take a bullet and survive it, scale a skyscraper if they had it during his time, and certainly outrace any chariot. But Timothy, it was said that was timid, was timid. Now, do a little background on the book and on this subject. Uh, some commentators make a big deal about his name, Timothy, coming from the, the word timid, that that may have matched his persona, Yet Timothy was a proven, faithful servant of God. Wherever Paul sent him, he went. And most of the time was to clean up messes in the early church. When Paul is writing 2 Timothy, Timothy is now 30 years old, maybe even older. Met him as a kid. And he's gone to a church, the church of Ephesus. He sent them there to fix some things. Interesting enough, the, the church had been started by Paul, and of all the churches that Paul did start, he spent the longest period of time getting that church established, nearly two years. Yet that church was experienced all kinds of turmoil. In a few weeks, when your pastor gets back to the book of Acts and he gets to chapter 20, he will hear Paul's address to the elders of Ephesus, and he will tell them specifically this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, meaning within the ranks of these elders, there will arise men speaking twisted thing and drawing away disciples. Sounds like they should be fearful, they should be worried, they should be concerned. Paul sends Timothy to set this church in order and to clean up some of these things. Nevertheless, the church didn't listen to Paul, and obviously they're not listening to Timothy because they're giving him a tough way to go. This is a bad experience for Timothy. They are resisting him. They are challenging him. They are doing everything possible. They're not happy about Paul, and they're not happy about Timothy. And Timothy's having a tough way to go. And so you ask the question, well, how do you know that? Thank you very much. I'm glad you asked. Well, if you go back to 1 Timothy 5, you know exactly why. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, for stomach's sake, have a little wine. And when one preacher encourages another preacher to start drinking, it's a serious situation. <laughs> but all kidding aside, this is a tough time. And Timothy's facing a tough time. So let's look at this text real quick. I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to... Um, a pull out of this text four things that Timothy needed and that you and I need to fight fear and to, and to push forward in a fearful world. Starting at verse 3. I thank God whom I serve 
as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be, I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, apostle, teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Four insights. What does Paul tell Timothy, who's facing fear, who's experiencing anxiety, who's feeling a little overwhelmed? What does he say to Timothy to say, listen, you do not have to have fear named among you? Here's the first thing. Assure salvation. Assure salvation. Look at verses 3 through 5. As we begin the text, we can see that Paul loves Timothy. And Timothy's circumstance and foremost in his mind, he he says to him, look, I've been praying for you night and day. It's on my mind constantly. I want to be with you. And if I was just with you, it would bring me great joy. But he's stuck in prison. And so the best that he can do right now is to pray for him and encourage him and to remind him of some things that could bolster him up and fight off the fear. And the first is to just tell him about his sure salvation. Look at verse 5. Paul gives a testimony saying, look, I've known you and I've known, Timothy, that you love the Lord and that his faith, he calls it a sincere faith. That word sincere means genuine, true, proven This isn't a fake faith. This isn't a put-on faith, and it's not even a lackluster faith. It's a sincere faith. And over time, this faith has been proven. It's passed the test of time. And Timothy, just in case that all that you're going through and the struggles that you're facing and even the unkind accusations that you might experience, you may be doubting your faith in the Lord or if the Lord is actually there for you, but you have no reason to doubt because I know that your salvation is real. It gives some sympathy, it gives some empathy, but more importantly, it reminds them of a reality. 
Paul isn't even accusing Timothy of not having faith or having a crisis of faith. He's just telling him, look, stuff happens. Times occurred where fear rises up and there's things that's happening and swirling all around you. And at that moment, you might start to doubt your faith. But I want to tell you the foundations are sure. Be reaffirmed. You are a child of God. It's because Paul has known Timothy a long time. In Acts 16, we we see Paul knows his salvation story, and he reminds him of that. Look at the last part of verse 5. He says, look, this faith that you have first dwelled in your grandmother Lois. He knew Lois. He had met Lois on that first missionary journey through Galatia. He came across Lois, and he met Lois's daughter and Timothy's mother, Eunice. And he said, I know these people, I know their faith was sure, I know their faith was sincere, and I know the same faith that's in them is in you, Timothy. Your faith is sure. Timothy had a rich heritage, a granny named Lois, a mom named Eunice. And though his dad was Greek, even having an unsaved father, the Lord found Timothy and saved him. And the testimony of these ladies in his life as a glorious reality is just like them. You have this sincere faith. Paul is just bolstering him up. How important these words would be to Timothy to just remember of the provenness and the heritage of his faith. Heritage of faith that we may or may not come from It's personal, powerful. It's important for us to rejoice and to think about them and and think over and over and over of the amazing story of how the gospel came to each one of us and the reality of that, the testimony of that, of that day and that moment when you gave your life to Christ and not to shrink back from that, but to know that's a sure foundation. What's interesting is, What I like about this is, unlike Paul, Timothy's faith experience was not a blast of light on a road of Damascus saving a murderer and making him a missionary. This is, he was basically loved and nurtured by two godly women who, from the early part of his life, taught him the scriptures and he gave his life to Christ. And so the salvation story of Timothy is still special. It's still important. It's still an anchor in his life. He didn't need some spectacular thing to be reminded of. Listen, if fear is rising up in all of us, we need to stop and remember when God found us, when God saved us, when he made us a child of God, when he he, uh, put a light in our darkened minds And when the Spirit of God invaded our souls and made us new and saved us for all eternity. Remember, once saved, always saved. And there may be times of wandering and struggle and sin, but we work out our salvation, and it is God who keeps reeling us back because he's the one who has a grip and a hold on us. And if you're overwhelmed by fear and you have no assurance of salvation and and doubts invade your mind and you're not sure about where you are, do not fret. 
because you just need to be reminded of that day that it happens, or maybe this is a time where you say to yourself, maybe I need to come to faith in Christ, but don't get yourself all twisted. You and I cannot fight off fear without God being in our lives, and so this is a good wake-up call. It's both descriptive and prescriptive. And because I don't know the Savior, I can't fight off any kind of fear, so come to him. Come to him. Make sure it's a sure salvation. But if you're here today and you know Christ, stand firm in that reality. It's interesting that Paul goes right back to the basics when facing any kind of fears. He just said, wait a minute, stop. I'm a child of God. I am a child of God. Second thing, a spiritual stirring. How do you face how do you face fear? Well, you make sure that your salvation is sure, but then you may need a spiritual serving. Look at verse 6. Paul tells Timothy another way to overcome fear, and that he makes it clear that he wants to remind you of something. That, that means that you, you already know this, Timothy. What I'm about to tell you, you already know. You just need to be reminded. I know in the fog of war, sometimes you forget things. And, and you, the simplest but the most significant things we just be, forget. You know, I get that when, you, when, you, when, you, when fear comes in and starts to overwhelm you, you, you forget to run away. I mean, when fear comes in, you forget your children's name. When fear comes in, sometimes you forget your own name. <laughs> I mean, how many times when fear comes in and, and you know exactly what you should do, you just forget what you're supposed to do. And so you need to be reminded. And good thing he has a good friend like this to remind him. So what does he remind him of? He says to him, look, when these lapses come, we need to renew our mind. We need to re revive our hearts. And Paul tells him he needs to fan into flame the gift of God. Let's look at that phrase. So, some translations read it this way, kindle afresh. Kindle afresh. Let me give you a more practical way. Blow air on the embers. You got a little fire pit. Maybe you got a little fire pit going this week. Going to start getting cold here. You know, it's been not the, not the greatest weather for a fire pit. It may cool off this week. Maybe uh, during Halloween, you'll set up a little fire pit while the little munchkins come to uh, steal all the candy from whoever. And, but you get a little fire. And if the flames go down, but there are embers there, there's still hope because all it needs is a little bit more energy and to blow some air on the embers and stir up the flames. That's what he's talking about. He said, the flames have maybe decreased a little bit, has gotten squashed because of the fear in your life, Timothy, but the, the embers are still there. The fire is still there. You just got to blow some air on it and get those flames roaring again. He needs revival for alliteration's sake, spiritual stirring. Spiritual stirring, that's what he's saying, stir up your faith. Revival has certainly been misinterpreted and misunderstood. Revival is not an event that is staged in a town or a church to try to get people saved. I know that sometimes if people say, well, our church is going to have a revival, you think, oh, okay, bring our unsaved people there to get saved. No, 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 a true revival 
is for those who know Christ. The idea, the derivative of the word is that you've fallen asleep and you need to be wakened up. It's, it's the awakening of believers. We've lapsed in our fervency. We've become lethargic. We, we've gotten lazy in our faith. We need awakening from our apathy. We need to get stirred up anew and afresh. Beloved, any one of us Matter of fact, I would conclude that all of us at every time, any time, maybe even daily, we need to be revived, if not surely a weekly stirring. But there's something that Paul says here, again, that to shake his thinking, to get him out of this fog. He, he had reminded him that he's a child of God, but he also reminds him he's been called by God for a purpose. He, he says here, I need you to get stirred up by remembering when you had hands laid on you. That was the confirming of his calling. Paul acknowledges that there was a moment when you dedicated yourself to Christ and his worth, and you declared that you were under the lordship of Christ, and you wanted to be used, and then it was confirmed and affirmed by other brothers and sisters. Back in Acts chapter 16, we read this. Paul came to Derby and Lystra. That was in Galatia. This is now on the second missionary journey. He had been there first. He had a tough way of it. He had gone back to Antioch. Now he's out on the second missionary journey. He beelines it for Galatia. Why? He has lost Barnabas and John Mark. There was a little bit of a conflict. He had lost them. He needed a new apprentice. And so he was running through the Rolodex of his mind, who would be a good apprentice? And he says, that kid in Galatia, that kid in Galatia is perfect. Let's go back and get this 16, 17-year-old kid. And there was a disciple named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and in Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in that place, for they knew his father was Greek. And Paul probably met him on that first missionary journey, needed him, and that, that when it says there, he took him, it's a good word for grab, he grabbed hold of him, he literally grabbed him and said, I need you. He laid hands on him, but he was well spoken. And then he goes under circumcision, that's laying hands on him for sure, but... But the fact of the matter is that was to prove his committedness because he already had a, he had a kind of a shaky John Mark. He wanted to make sure Timothy was in it for, to win it. And Paul had an apostolic authority of laying hands on him and showing him, that God has called you, Timothy. And, and in 1 Timothy 4, Paul reminds him again. He says this, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. Wow. So he said, Timothy, you got this fear right now. You're a little shaky. You're a child of God, but I want to tell you one thing. You've been called for a purpose, and God needs you, and you cannot, you cannot collapse now. God needs you to fulfill the purpose by which he called you in. And Timothy needed to revive his mind and his heart that God had a purpose for him, that God needed to use him, that God was not done with him, that he was the guy for the job at the moment in that place. That's why 
this is so important. We need these moments in our lives, do we not? We need the memory of these moments when we make these serious commitments and, 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 and we get our hands laid on them, like at baptism. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. Why? Well, be obedient to the Lord, be obedient to the Scriptures. But that day where before all your brothers and sisters, someone lays hands on you, and in that act of baptism, it is confirmed and affirmed that you're a child of God. You need to remember that. And then when you join the church, I don't know how you guys do it here, but we used to call it the right hand of fellowship. It was in public. You would see it. We would shake your hand. You're part of this family. You're part. We need you here. You're an important part. You're not just some side action here. We need you here. You have a purpose here. That's why we're bringing you into the membership. Any kind of significant role of ministry I practiced for years with especially a small group leader who I used to call the most strategic leader in the church. It wasn't me, it was a small group leader because they were actually doing the discipling of people. And we would bring them forward, we'd pray over them, we would announce these are important people. Why? Because they had a purpose for God, uh, for God to work through, a significant role. Remembering these important dates and times are important. Every few years I get a new Bible and I go through the exact same thing. And that is in the front of my Bible, I put all those important dates in my own life. And I have etched in my Bible, November 7th, 1967, when I knelt in a second grade class with Edith Carlson, and I gave my life to Christ. This past summer, I went back to that old church, and I took a picture of that room where I came to Christ where my salvation was sure. It stirred up my faith. And then I remember July 11th, 1972, when Fred Mackey, my pastor, baptized me as a believer in Jesus Christ. And then I remember August 28th, 1986, when I was ordained as a minister of the gospel. And I remember that day, and those men who put their hands on me, and I also remember today, October 29th, 1983, when in my arms my father died in the garage floor of my home. He looked at me, smiled, and fell into my arms and died. Now, I thought my whole world had ended. But there was something that settled in my spirit to say, your dad is gone, but I am with you. Beloved, we need those days to stir our hearts when fear comes because God is with us. Amen? And so, how does fear get overcome? Because these moments provide confidence and commitment. It stirs us, it revives us. There's a third thing. It's a superior spirit. A sure salvation. A spiritual stirring. But what else helps us with fear is a superior spirit. In verse 7, Paul gets right to this matter. He, he's been, I have to be honest, that Paul's, Paul has really contained himself. The first few verses, he was very, very caring, very loving, very pastoral. No more. Okay, you've got enough of me now. Now I'm going to let it go, Timothy. Enough is enough, young man. And, and he says to him, look, we, Timothy... 
the Spirit of God who is indwelling you is not a spirit of fear. And if you're feeling, feeling a sense of that fear in your life, if you feel it pushing in you, it is not the Spirit of God you are feeling. Stop it. Now, we would expect anything but clear and unadulterated truth from Paul. And he could have stopped there, but it wasn't enough because he goes and explains that spirit. He said that is not... We've not been given a spirit of timidity, Timothy. That's where we get to play on words. It's not to have fear, Timothy, but we have power, we have love, we have self-control. Let me just look at that for a second. Spirit of power, the word there is dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. We, We have God's spiritual, supernatural power in us. It's dynamite. It's explosive. It's so powerful. It, it can break everything and anything, Timothy. That's the kind of spirit in your life. It's a power when you're speaking. It's a power of discernment. It's a power of boldness. It's a power to endure suffering, Timothy. It's a power to transform, Timothy. It's a power that Through your spiritual gift, you can minister to people. It's the power of the resurrection. You have power, dunamis power in you. And don't forget that. It's a superior spirit. He calls it the spirit of love. The word is agapeo. It's that idea of sacrificial love, unconditional love, shown to us through Christ. God is love. He has shown us love. And every day, he keeps loving us, and the spirit of love is in us. It's a love that has accepted us no matter what, assures us no matter what, approves of us no matter what. This love embraces us. This love holds on to us. This love motivates us. This love heals us. This is a forgiving and restoring love. The spirit of God fills our heart with this love. I have a God who loves me, who cares for me, who will never allow anything to happen of me and will not separate me from his divine plan. I think it was already mentioned this morning in Romans 8. It says, for we know that who love God, uh, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have been called to his purpose. And then later on in the chapter it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is it tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? And it continues on. It says, Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Why? Because it's the spirit of love that's indwelled in us and holds us, and you never have to doubt that God doesn't love you. It's a spirit of self-control. A sound mind. The ancient Greeks had this idea of a calm, self-controlled mind contrasted to panic and confusion and fearful situation. And the Spirit of God is one who does not allow our minds to go out of control. Therefore, if we start speculating or imagining or fantasizing or creating all kinds of panic-filled, unsubstantiated ideas in our mind that cripple and paralyze us, that is not the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God is controlling our minds. 
In 2 Corinthians 10, just write this down, 2 Corinthians 10, 2 through 7, it says this, I beg you, Paul's writing the Corinthians who had a problem with their minds. I beg you, and when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of you suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk according to the flesh, I'm not waging war according to the flesh. Meaning I'm in my body, I'm in the world, and yeah, we're a fleshly war here, but my battle is not with the flesh. He says, for our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but divine powers to tearing down strongholds. What are they? I destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. That's another word for imagination. The Greek word is akaroma. It gets in my head, and I start to dwell on that, that, that lie that starts to cripple me. And Paul says here, it's raised up against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Renew your mind. Have a sound mind. The Spirit of God will give you a sound mind if you allow his thoughts, his words, his ideas to control us. So the key to experiencing this superior uh, spirit of power, love, and self-control is to yield to the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to be constantly filled with the Spirit. Yes, we're indwelled with the Spirit at salvation, but we are filled every day. And it's not that I'm getting more of the Spirit, it's the Spirit is getting more of me and taking control of more of me, and and thus giving me this power to overcome any kind of fear. The battle is our mind, and the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, can renew our mind and give us the confidence we need. So when we need to overcome fear in the world, we have a sure salvation. We can get stirred up in our spirit on a regular basis. We have a superior spirit to do it. And there's one last thing. And probably you don't want to hear this, but I got to be honest, it's right there, and that is a shared suffering. In the last six verses or so, from 8 to 14, Paul describes, he says, look, Timothy, part of being a follower of Christ is that you will be persecuted, you will be falsely accused, you will be attacked on all fronts, our beliefs, our values will be questioned. You will be canceled in, at every corner. Jesus said it this way, if the world hated me, they will certainly hate you who are my disciples. And Paul uses himself as an example, if you can see that in the text there. He says, look, he says, I- I'm a prisoner for my faith. And, and, and that was being used up against uh, Paul, but also Timothy. There were those in the church ashamed of Paul of having been in prison. They were using it. They said, could you imagine? How, how is it that a man of God, an apostle, is being in prison? Are you kidding? And, and what was worse, it was the Christians who were saying that. The church was saying that. And, and I get from the text... Timothy was even a little troubled by it, maybe a little embarrassed, maybe trying to separate himself from Paul a little bit and say, you know, know, the way that Paul conducts his ministry, you know, he's a little over the top at times. I'm not like that. And Paul says to him, Timothy, Timothy, 
wake up. Share in my suffering. Don't separate yourself from it. Don't distance yourself from Christ and from our work. Don't distance you from other believers. If suffering has happened, so be it. It's going to happen. If we suffer for righteousness' sake, it's going to happen. If the world out there is going to hate us because of our Christ and because of our faith and because we believe the Bible and because of the life we live, so be it. Embrace it. Lean into it. Don't run from it. Share in my suffering. And then he launches off in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He tells, he says why. I'll give it to you really fast. He said, I'll tell you why. Because Christ saved you. You're going to run from that? You're going to run from that? Oh, you're the people who believe that if you trust in this guy who was crucified on a cross, you have all your sins forgiven. You're, oh, you're so perfect, and you know for sure you're going to heaven. Well, yeah, I do. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I, I bear that mark any day. Amen? For the three of you, that's good. Okay. He also says that, look, we've been called. He reminds them again of the holy calling. It's not because of our works, but because of God's purpose, grace. We've been chosen before the ages. Timothy, your God choosing you was determined in eternity past. It was settled and done in the annals of eternity. Timothy, this is not a just, you know, kind of figure it out as a go kind of faith. The eternal God has chosen you. And he's given you resurrected power. He has been resurrected, and that power is in you. And he has had victory over death. He's abolished death and brought life and immortality to you through the gospel. And he has gifted us and given us a ministry. That's why Paul says in verse 11, look at it. He says, I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher. Verse 12, I'm eternally secure, Timothy. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day, what day, when he returns for us or we go to him. And we've been given his word. He says in 13, follow that pattern of sound doctrine or sound teaching, the sound words that you've heard from me. And then verse 14, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, guarding that good deposit. Timothy, that's not too shabby. Look at everything we have. And so a little suffering comes our way. And you want to start to run? Are you kidding me? Lean into it. So be it. If I'm going to suffer for Christ, so be it. I love Maverick music. I, I love these guys. I love their my favorite song, I was listening to it as I was reading through my sermon this morning. Fear is not our future. You are. You are. Death is not the end. You are. You are. Heartbreak is not my home. You are. You are. Sin is not my story. You are. You are. Fear is not our future, friends. He is. Lean into it. One last verse to remind us of this truth, Hebrews 2. The writer of Hebrews says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took on the same thing. Who was that? Well, that was Christ. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all of us through the fear of death that we were subject to for a lifelong slavery. When Christ died and, and had victory over death in the grave and gave us that gift of eternal life, we will never die. We will never die. And therefore, in this world, we may suffer, but they can never kill us. And therefore, they have no power over us. And so fear is not my slave master. Christ and his victory is. Beloved, we share in that suffering because we have experienced victory over that and all of fear through Christ. And so Timothy's faith is now bolstered. Why? Because of a sure salvation. Because of the prospect that you can stir up that spirit every day and have a personal revival. We have a superior spirit like nothing else. The power we have in us, oh my goodness. And because suffering's going to come, we just share, we just lean in, we grab hold of it, bring it on. Bring it on. You, is that all you got? Is that all you got? We put to death fear. So what do we do with this? Just final thoughts. Number one, begin today by start thinking correctly about fear. Start thinking correctly about fear. Think differently about fear. Think differently about fear. Secondly, Make sure that you're in Christ. I don't want to run past this, but I think it's important that, as I said to you at the beginning, assure salvation. You can never overcome fear without Christ. You can't. And so if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, today's your day of salvation. Today, good news that you can come to faith in Christ and experience his resurrection power. Don't leave this place without that. Just come and talk to one of us. There'll be people down here. I'll be here. Matt's here. Well, any one of us want to talk to you because we don't want you to live in fear. We want you to live in hope and faith and love and all those things that Christ wants to give you. But if you are a believer, that you may just need to get your spirit stirred up and you need to lean in and, and start to yield to the spirit. Thirdly, remember the work in your life in the past. He has not revoked that calling or those promises in your life. They are sure as yes and amen. Yes and amen. And finally, help others. I think it's interesting that Paul helps Timothy. And, and that's why we have each other. That's why we have the church, because at times, any one of us, fear can come in. But you know what I know? Courage is contagious. And we who are walking in courage, we need to sneeze on a couple of us. And give that courage to each other. We need help. All of us do. And we need to keep pushing each other to not fear, not fear. It should never be named among us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word today, for the hope that we have, for the encouragement that we've received. Fear is not our future. You are. You are. We pray that we'll walk away today with great confidence that you are going to do a work in us. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen.